I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Emily Cherniak, the executive director of New Politics, an organization focused on recruiting and electing leaders who've served the country through military service. In fact, New Politics has helped elect some members of Congress who you may be familiar with, like Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger of Virginia or Representative Seth Moulton of Massachusetts. Over the years, there's been a decline in the number of people who've served in the military, then run for office. And Emily explains what's behind that decline. We also talk about what people who've served in the military bring to the table in elected positions, and it might not be what you think. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Emily Cherniak of New Politics. Emily Cherniak, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. You know, I read this interesting statistic recently about the percentage of members of Congress who had served in the military. And about 50 years ago, I think it was the majority of Congress had served in the military in some capacity, right? Yep. And now I think it's around 20% or somewhere under 20%. Mm -hmm. Why is that, right? And why was the link there to begin with? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think when I started this to think about this idea of new politics, which is recruiting, you know, servant leaders to run for office, I looked at this data. It was really surprising that such a low percentage now of people serving. And I think partly that is about, you know, World War II, the greatest generation, you know, a lot of them went into public service and they're just a lot more veterans. So I think, you know, obviously we have less than 1% of the country who has served. So that's part of it. But I think the other part is that a lot of people who have service backgrounds just don't go into politics and for lots of reasons, but we are at the lowest number in history. So I think when people talk about partisan gridlock and Congress not working, maybe isn't a causal relationship, but I feel like it's a high correlation between the lowest number of service people in Congress and the highest level of gridlock that we've seen in our history. You know, even at the federal level, I remember when it was pretty common to have a president or someone, you know, on the ballot who served, right? And Mm -hmm. I think out of the, you know, 46 presidencies we've had, the most recent, the modern presidencies have not had military service, right? I think 15 out of 46 did not. So that's even become kind of common at the presidential level. But why do you think it's important? You know, what perspective do you think that they bring, you know, even in a legislative capacity, someone who served in the military? Yeah, I think a lot of people obviously sort of think about, well, they've served in war, therefore they're going to have a perspective on foreign policy, which I think is true. But I think the other aspects that I, I think a lot of people miss is that, you know, people who have served you know, they've had some really unique leadership development opportunities in their service. So, you know, between the ages of 18 and 25, they have worked on diverse teams. They have worked with people from different ideologies, from different parts of the country. They've had to lead people and bring diverse groups of people together towards a common mission, a common goal that is not about themselves. And they've also had to get on the job, like problem solving. So they're dropped into places and have to kind of problem solve and figure it out so it's on the boots train or on you know on the ground boots on the ground training and i think all of those leadership skills and they're sort of drilled in them this notion of country first and i think all of that together are really important leadership skills that are really invaluable in political life and so i think besides the maybe the perspective of you know being in war the perspective of foreign policy it's those leadership skills that i think were what we really need now more than ever but one of the very first candidates that you recruited to run for office was Seth Moulton of Massachusetts. How did you convince him to run? Yeah, so I had gone to David Gergen, who was, I live, I live in Boston. So David Gergen is at Harvard and I had gone to him and I was a Cityer kid. So I, I did a AmeriCorps program called Cityer and David Gergen was very much a champion of that organization. So I had met him through my former boss, Alan Casey. And I had pitched David this idea and he was like, I love this idea. I think it's totally needed. 
you know, David had served in, in military. He also had served for president. So he has sort of seen the, you know, the rise and fall of the service veterans in political life. And he was like, I love this idea. Seth Moulton is the kind of person you're talking about. Like he should run for Congress one day. And I had met Seth uh, when he was at the Kennedy School and my Alan Casey, my boss and I were doing national service policy. And so Seth, I called him and I was like, you know, hey, would you ever think about running for Congress? And sort of serendipitously, there was a, where Seth was born and raised in Massachusetts, the congressman at the time had a scandal and it was, he was kind of vulnerable. So there was sort of this, the universe kind of all the stars aligned for sort of a situation where, you know, he possibly could run. And so I had called him and he was living in Texas working on high-speed rail, which if you ever have met Seth Moulton, you would know that is like his passion in life is to make sure that we have high-speed rail around the country. Um, <laughs> and he was like, I'm not interested. I'm working on high-speed rail. Like I'm living my dream, you know? And at that point, I didn't have a job. And this was sort of the one thing I was trying to do. And I was sort of like, if Seth doesn't do it, then I don't know what else I'm going to do. So I just kept calling him. And he finally, he was visiting his parents in Massachusetts. So he was like, I'm here. Let's just like get coffee. I think he was like, trying to be polite. But I, I just was like, I'm persistent. And I finally said yes. But it was a, you know, it was a slog. But thankfully, he said yes. And, and here we are. Oh, that's funny. That kind of makes sense because I don't know if everyone knows this, but he has a background in physics. I think he studied at Harvard. So, you know, the high speed rail thing (laughs) makes sense, right? Yeah. So I asked, you know, where did you find him? I think at the time he was kind of everywhere talking about, not everywhere, but I know that he'd done some media appearances talking about 9-11 and talking about the Iraq war and, you know, Mm -hmm. critical of that. Was that around the same time? Yeah, a little bit after that. And it was really interesting when he was thinking of running and we had talked to people in Massachusetts about it and very, very, a lot of progressive liberals here. And um, they all thought he was for the war, like without even knowing anything about him because he was a veteran. This interesting thing happened where a lot of people were like, oh my God, he's going to like send us to war. So it is interesting. I think when you think about veterans running for office, some people have this sort of stigma of like, well, they're just going to want to go to war when actually I would say not all of them, but because they have served overseas, it's something they really would take serious consideration about sending others over there. But it's interesting, like I think the reaction we had got in the beginning when he was running, a lot of people were like, he's for the war, he wants to like stay there forever. So yeah. Yeah, that, you know, I was actually going to ask you about that, just generally, you know, not necessarily just about Seth, but just generally having people who, you know, have served in the military, and that's a part of their message or campaign message, like, hey, look, I'm great for this office, because I've served, I'm you know, in this capacity, you know, people make this assumption that they are kind of, you know, people throw the word around or the phrase around warmongers, right? Or they mm-hmm. favor military action over diplomacy. But when you really think about it, it doesn't really make sense. It's not a logical connection because if you've been to war, you know how important right. it is to try to avoid it at all costs. Exactly. Exactly. Did Seth hear that when he was on the campaign trail at all? Or Yeah. And we pulled it. Like, I remember it was a real data point. And he had to really explicitly talk about that because the assumption was that he was for war. So he had to really explicitly say how he felt about the war and how he feels about us going to war as a country. Yeah. But, you know, honestly, it really doesn't matter because even people who haven't been in the military are often accused of being warmongers. I'm, I'm not really sure how people make those associations, but they mm-hmm. you know that accusation is out there. So um, it's hard to avoid. So let's fast forward to today where we've got, you know, Russia and America may or may not get directly involved right now. You know, we're still on the side of diplomacy. But how would having more members of the military in Congress, for instance, how would it shape those debates, you think? Like this specifically with Russia and Ukraine? Yeah, it's actually a timely question because Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill from New Jersey, we did a call with her the other day, and she actually is a Russia expert. 
And so she actually asked to go over there. So she went over to Ukraine because she sort of was like, I need, we need to see what's going on. And so her and some other members went over there recently, a few weeks ago, and to really kind of see what's going on. And so it was interesting hearing, you know, her perspective on that. I think I'm not a foreign policy expert, so I really, there's not much else I can say about it, except that I will say that, you know, having these types of leaders, you know, the Mikey Shale, Jason Crow, um, Elaine Luria, Mike Allier, Peter Meyer, you know, having them in, in Congress makes me feel so much better about decisions we make about foreign policy. Because for someone like Mikey, who studied it and has been over there and has boosted underground experience, she knows what she's talking about. And I think that is really helpful in how we navigate this really complex, um, complex thing going on with these countries. So, you know, aside from these debates we have about war and military action, how do you think that having someone with a military background would shape other debates that we're having right now, like about healthcare or voting rights? Is there an advantage to having served in the military, you think, in those debates? Absolutely. I think, you know, Seth Moulton always says this when he first got to Congress and after he'd been there for a little while. What he always says, and I agree with him, and that's sort of why I do the work I do is, you know, he said that, like, there are a lot of smart people. There are a lot of people that are working hard. There are a lot of people that are well-intentioned. He said the one thing that's missing from most of Congress is courage. He's like, and it's the courage to actually do what's right. He's like, a lot of people know what to do. They just don't do it because they're afraid. And so I think when you have people that have, I mean, Seth's like, I've been shot at, like, it's just not that hard to tell the truth to a constituent about why you voted (laughs) the way you did, you know? Yeah. So I think when you've been through those situations and you've just, you know, you're framing this country first, I think you're just willing to say the truth and not not hide and really stand up for your votes. And I think we've seen that with many of these members is they're just sort of willing to kind of do what's right and and work together to get things done. I mean, they are actually some of the most bipartisan members of Congress that are the most effective in working with others to get things done. And I think that's what they're really good at. So whatever, whether it's domestic or foreign policy, you know, their goal is to like, how do we solve it? How do we get it done? And who can we work together to do that? And speaking of bipartisanship, and I know that you recruit both Democrats and Republicans, is there a reason why, I think I read that most of your recruits have been Democrats. Is that who's stepping up or why is that? Yeah, a little bit, a few things. I mean, one is um, it's been a tough climate over the past four years for Republicans. So we do have a lot of people that didn't run because they just, it was just a tough climate politically to be a Republican in a primary. Um, <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> yeah. For, you know, obvious reasons. Um, Yeah. And and so I think for the most part, we've never needed to be 50-50. That was never my goal. I think for us, it's about, you know, where are the most transformational leaders? So you could have 20 Republicans who are B players and don't do a lot, or you could have five that are really transformational and game-changing, right? And so for us, it's about where are the game-changing leaders and where do we invest in them? And so right now, we actually have several. We have two that are challenging Republicans in primaries who should, in my opinion, deserve to be challenged. And we have a few open seats with some really great Republican candidates in pretty red districts. So I think we're getting a little bit more balanced now that, you know, it's past 2020. I think we'll see more of a new generation of Republican leaders, I'm hopeful, that are coming up who will be good for the country and good for our democracy. So you've got two people who are challenging Republicans, two Democrats who are challenging or Republicans who are challenging Republican incumbents? Two Republicans that are challenging Republican incumbents in primaries and very red districts. They're not, the Democrat would never win there. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you say that. I think Nancy Pelosi recently said that we needed a Republican Party that was functional, right? Mm-hmm. And I think she got a lot of criticism for that. And I don't think people understand that, you know, without two functioning parties, 
you know, you're not going to be in both parties, right? <laughs> I mean, you're going to be in one or the other. And I think that people who are in the Democratic Party, you know, just because we've had all of these problems with the Republican Party, don't fully take into account the necessity of having two functioning parties for a balanced government, right? And right now, I, you know, I can't say that the Republican Party is really functioning right now. I don't know if you have anything to say about that, but it is really important for a good balanced government. Exactly. No, I agree. And it's why we're bipartisan. I think first service transcends um, political parties, but also people have come at me all the time about that. They're like, why aren't you Democratic only, you know, like shame on you for supporting Republicans and all of those things. And and I agree with you. I think at the end of the day, our democracy won't work. We're never going to have a supermajority of one party or the other. I don't care what anyone says. You might have one year or, or a cycle where you're winning back the house or whatever, but it's never going to work unless you have functional people and also that you take out the obstructionists. Like there are several people who are actually really bad for democracy and are instigating a lot of it. And so it's not everybody. If you can take out the ones that are the loudest in the room, it really makes a difference in the culture of Congress and you can change that for the better. So I know you have a new project called the New Power Project. What is that exactly? Yeah, so the New Power Project is really focusing on BIPOC potential candidates. You know, I've been doing this work now for about 12, 13 years, and I've been sort of working on the new politics idea for almost 10 years. I, you know, called Seth Moulton in the summer of 2012, even though new politics was not like officially an organization yet. It was just an idea at that time. But for 10 years, I've been really thinking about this idea of who runs and what are the barriers for entry. And I think that on the journey, I've really, you know, realized there are significant barriers that are even steeper for BIPOC people in general, right? People who want to run. And I've just seen some really challenging, you know, our candidates who are amazing and just the the pushback they get, the barriers that they face, you know, who are um, our candidates of color are really significant. And so one thing I we have been trying to think about and do is how do we really invest resources in helping recruit and support, you know, more a more diverse pipeline of leaders and especially at the local level, because I think, you know, that's where you can really build a pipeline and it sets people up for success. It's hard to run for Congress right away as a first time candidate. You have to be able to raise like a million or two million dollars, and very few people have the resources and networks to do that. You know, but if you look at Congress, you know, half of Congress comes from the state legislature. You know, twenty percent were former mayors, and you know, most mayors are formerly city councilors, right? So you can you can start people in places where they can win. For example, David Crowley, who you know we we worked with in twenty fifteen, he ran for city council. Uh, in Milwaukee, he lost that race, but the next year there was a state rep seat open, and he ran and won that. And then in 2017, the county executive role opened up for Milwaukee, and he ran and won. He couldn't have run for county executive from the jump as a first-time candidate, but because he started out in city council and then you know ran for that and then state rep, he was able to build an infrastructure. And county executive was what Scott Walker had that role before he ran for governor. So it's a real pipeline for for statewide office. And David Crowley is the first African American you know, in the history of Milwaukee to hold that seat. So he is sort of our like role model of a story of if you get people set up and help them get their foot in the door and run. And, you know, they can then go on to have a political future. And finally, I'll say, as we all know, like, you know, politics should be, democracy should be representative of our communities. And if it's not, and if our electorate doesn't look like the communities that we're serving, then then it's not a democracy at all. So I think our goal is to really try to get more representation into political power, because that really matters. Exactly, exactly. So the New Power Project, is it open to all people of color candidates or do they have to have a background in military service too? Or is that separate? They don't have to have military service. You know, we still vet people on our core values as an organization. They have to be what we, what we say a servant leader. 
And so we vet them on, you know, values, culture alignment, mission alignment, and kind of go from there. So, but yeah, they don't have to have like a military background to be part of the project. But for the people that you are recruiting with military backgrounds, sounds like you're also running them at the state legislative level as well. Yeah, actually, 70% of our candidates are down ballot, right? So they're running for state rep, state senate, city council. Okay. Have you ever considered running yourself? (laughs) No, I appreciate the question because I think it it's like if people don't ask me directly, they always like think I'm doing this to like run for office. I I will never run. You know, one of the programs we offer at New Politics, our our academy, it's our training arm, is we do something called answering the call. And it's grounded in, you know, real leadership development work. Um, Ron Heifetz, a a professor at Harvard and, and others had developed this sort of leadership model about being really clear about who you are and your core values. And so we kind of make everyone go through that before they decide what they want to do in the political arena, whether they want to run for office, whether they want to be a candidate or a campaign staffer, whether they want to, you know, work for a member, you know, everybody should play a role. And we really believe in that. And, you know, not everyone will run for office and that's okay, but everyone has to be clear about their core values and who they are. And so in doing that work, what's really clear to me is my role is to do what I'm doing now to like really build infrastructure build support and help as many people as possible to run because then our country will only get better if we elect people who put the country first. So being a candidate is not my jam. It's like not my journey. And I'm really clear about that. So that's like a long answer to no, but I want to give you context for why, because I'm really (laughs) not, I'm really not running ever. Like not never, never. So let's say there's someone who served in the military, or maybe they have a, a partner or a family member who's served and they're listening to this conversation and they're on the fence about running. What would you say to them? You know, we, we really think that everybody should think about getting involved in the political arena. And so a lot of people who say, that's not for me, you know, I'm just, I don't do politics. Like that is who we're looking for. Like you are someone, if you're listening to this, like you're the person actually that we want to recruit. And so just know that you have been asked to run for office and you have been asked to get into the political arena in whatever way feels comfortable for you. But the more of us that can engage in the political space, the better our democracy will be. So I just challenge everyone to think about that especially those who have served and appreciate everyone's service to their country and asking you to serve again in this way. Right. I, I agree with that. I mean, so if you have a background in military service, Emily, is, you know, for you, but if you don't and you still want to run, you should consider it. And there are dozens of orgs, you know, who can help people with, you know, non-traditional political backgrounds get into the game. And I think that's really, really important. Yeah. And actually one thing, we actually do national service as well. So if you've done any type of community, you know, AmeriCorps, Peace Corps, any type of sort of significant service. We're your people. So feel free to reach out. Well, Emily Cherniak, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for all of the good work you're doing. No, thank you for having me and appreciate you. And this is great. <laughs>